Father, may we mean everything we have just sung. Because of Jesus and in Jesus and through Jesus and Him alone, thank You. Thank You for the awesome, terrible price that He paid in enduring a horrific death so that we could have life. Holy God in love became perfect man to bear my blame. On the cross he took my sin so that by his death I live again. Bring us to your son's table this morning that we remember Jesus and all that he is for us. And now as I open your word to your people and with your people, May I remember that these are your people. And so you have to do a work through your spirit using your word to point your people to your son. May that happen this morning in this place. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Thank you so much, team, for leading us this morning. Thank you for being here this morning. And I would encourage you, if you walked into this room... And uh, we are concluding our gathering this morning around our Lord's table. So if you walked into this room without picking up a communion cup, you can make your way out to the lobby now. They're available there on the table. Nobody will think anything. You'll be able to catch back up with us before we get too far along this morning. We want you to be able to come to our Lord's table together with us this morning. 1 Corinthians, excuse me, it's not 1 Corinthians 11 I'm in. We've spent a lot of time in 1 Corinthians 11 already. Um, Uh, quoting God's Word together, but it's Mark chapter 14 this morning. Mark chapter 14 in your copies of the Scriptures. If you don't have a Bible with you, you'll find a Bible near you in the hymnal rack of the pew in front of you, or if you're sitting in the front row of a section, you'll find that Bible below you in the hymnal rack there. And, And let me just say, it's page 1011 in the copy of the Church Bible, and if you do not own a Bible... We have a Bible for you to take home. It's our gift for you. It's totally free of charge. Just after the service, make your way to our counseling center. And there against the back wall in our counseling center, you will see Bibles that we have available for you to take home. We want to get God's word into your hands and into your heart. And one of the reasons we want to do that is because we want you to know why you believe what you believe. So every Sunday morning at 9.30 in the morning during our Sunday school hour here at Bethel, I'm up in room 305 and I'm teaching a new members class. It's really a foundations class. It's a get-to-know-you-Bethel class. We want everyone who comes here and as, as the Lord leads them to become a part of us and to become members here at Bethel, we want them to know what we believe, but that's not all. We want them to know why we believe what we believe from this book. And this morning in Mark chapter, let me just say, let me put in a plug here. If you're new here and you want to learn more about Bethel, we would love for you to come to our new members class, room 305, 9.30 a.m. every Sunday morning. There's about 10 of us in there and we just have a great time. And I'll just say this, most of the time we don't even get to the notes. Most of the time, it's just a conversation. Most of the time, it's why do you do things this way? Why do you believe this? And it's just a great time of being together in God's word together as God's people. Why do we believe what we believe? 
Mark chapter 14, verses 22 through 25, is a why do we believe what we believe text. Why do we believe what we believe about the Lord's Supper? Why do we believe what we believe about communion? And as Jesus is living his life on purpose for us, the very last thing he does with his disciples before he is crucified is he says, I want to teach you something. I want you to know why you believe what you believe, and I want you to keep on doing this until I come back for you. Jesus is on the home stretch now to the cross. So let's pick up this scene. It is very, very purposeful, very, very intentional. What Jesus does in the upper room with his disciples as they are gathered there around a table and they are observing Passover together. And that's where we pick up the text in verse 22 of Mark chapter 14. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread. And after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, take This is my body. And he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. This is the word of our God through the Son of God to the people of God, bringing us to the table this morning as we remember our Lord's death. In fact, I have entitled this text, A Night to Remember, because each of us this morning can probably look back to a night in our past that changed the trajectory of our life. April 2nd of 1993 was a night like that for me. I had un Unbeknownst to Joanna, I had purchased an engagement ring. And that night, I had it in my pocket. And she had come home. Joanna had come home from student teaching in Brownsburg, Indiana, and, uh, where I was a student at Faith Baptist Bible College in Ankeny, Iowa, just on the north side of Des Moines. And we were going on a double date that night with our friends, um, Dave and Lori. It all began with supper, and then Joanna, sometime during supper, said this, I'd really like to go look at engagement rings tonight. (laughs) And I'm thinking the whole time, God, please, if you're real. (laughs) And I know he is. I I mean, I grew up as as a believer in Jesus. I'm a pastor's kid. And I said, God, God, please, please, do not let her find a ring that she would like more than the one that's in my pocket. And then after looking at engagement rings, we made our way to the state capitol in Des Moines, overlooking the city there down Locust Avenue. And as Joanne and I were walking down the steps, overlooking the city there, I said to her, I said, oh, how I wish when you go back to Brownsburg tomorrow that you could have a ring on your finger. So let's just pretend Let's pretend. And I'm going to kneel down and I'm going to ask you the, the question. And, and so I did. And as I knelt, I pulled that ring out of my pocket. I slipped it on her finger. And I said, Joanna, will you marry me? And she looked down at her finger and said, no way. 
And I said, well, then give it back. <laughs> no, I didn't. She was blown away. She had no idea this was coming on this night. And finally, I think when she came to herself, she said, yes. That was a night that changed my life. And anytime we're back in the Des Moines area and we drive by the Capitol building there, the memories of that night come flooding back. And I think that's this night for these disciples. I can imagine that after this night, anytime they smelled bread baking, their minds would race back to this scene in the upper room because that's what Jesus intended this night to be for them and to do for them and even for us. Partaking of communion together is in a very dramatic and graphic way intended to take us back, including all of our senses. We touch the bread and the cup. We taste the bread and the juice. We hear the words of Christ as we are partaking together. All of it in every way is intended to take us back to Jesus. And that's why we read earlier from 1 Corinthians chapter 11 that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, take and eat. This is my body broken for you. Get this. Do this in remembrance of me. And so as we come to the table this morning, the big idea is that we are to remember Jesus. Remember Him. Remember Him intentionally. Remember Him consistently. Remember Him perpetually. You know why? Because let's just be honest this morning. Let's lay all the cards on the table and I'll be the first to do it. You can see them. We are prone to forgetting Jesus. In fact, I think I'm safe when I say that at the root of every sin we ever commit is that we have forgotten Jesus because he is enough for us. He gives us everything we need. He is for us everything we need. And whenever we forget that that is our Jesus, whenever we forget him, it's when we run away from him to try to find joy and satisfaction in things other than him. I think if you go back to Genesis chapter 3 and Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, when they partake of the fruit of the tree of the, the knowledge of good and evil and they enter into, into sin, that ultimately beneath or underlying their, their sin is that they have forgotten their God. And that's why on the way to work tomorrow, as we're racing from stoplight to stoplight, when someone cuts us off, we don't respond like Jesus because we've forgotten Jesus. When the boss is pressuring us or our spouse is criticizing us or our children are disrespecting us, we don't love them like Jesus because we've forgotten Jesus. When it comes to what we do with our money or our time or our plans for the future, we often leave Jesus on the outside looking in until we find ourselves in a pinch and we, and we really, really need him. And I'm not saying that we deliberately relegate Jesus to the back seat of life. 
It just happens inadvertently when we don't intentionally remember Jesus. And so Jesus institutes communion where we're reminded to remember Jesus by putting aside the distractions of life and focusing on Him in this time by making much of Him around His table. That's what Jesus is teaching His disciples in the upper room on this night where so much of the significance of this scene is discovered in the backstory to this scene. It's Jesus' final night with them. And they are all gathered around a table in some borrowed room somewhere in Jerusalem. They're eating, they're eating the Passover meal, which is a meal that's intended to take their minds back to when God redeemed His people from slavery in Egypt, when during that tenth plague, God instructed His people to sacrifice a lamb and then to take that lamb's blood and smear it on the doorposts of their homes so that when the death angel passed through the land, He would see the blood and pass over that house and the firstborn in that house would be spared and would live And so everything about the Passover meal is intended to point God's people back to His saving grace in Egypt. So let me ask a question this morning. How many of you in this room this morning have participated in a Passover meal? You've been a part of a Seder supper. Okay? Okay, very good. That's not a lot of us. And so this morning I'd like to do something a little bit different. I normally wouldn't do this on a Sunday morning, but I think it will be very, very helpful for us to do this this morning. And let's just take kind of a quick flyover of what a traditional Passover meal would look like for a Jew. Perhaps that's what Jesus is doing in this upper room on this night. We don't have any reason to believe otherwise. And let's do this, let's take this quick flyover of the Passover meal for two reasons. One, for us to really grasp what communion is and what communion means, we need a working knowledge of the Passover meal because as we see here, the Lord's Supper is rooted in the Passover meal. It's here that Jesus then transforms the Passover supper into the Lord's Supper. And it's such an epic event that Jesus says, what I'm doing with you, I want you to keep on doing. Because I am the true Passover lamb who takes away the sins of the world. And so all those previous lambs that were sacrificed in in observance of Passover, they all pointed to me. I am the one, I am the final lamb who takes away the sins of the world. And so when by grace and through faith, my blood is applied to the doorposts of your hearts, I will do for you what I did for my people back in Egypt. I will save you. And that's why, secondly, secondly this morning, what happens during this Passover meal is what God's people have been commemorating and celebrating for 2,000 years. We are not the first generation to do what we're doing here this morning. Now, I want to be clear here that partaking of communion does not make us Christians, but partaking of communion is what marks us as Christians. We read in 1 Corinthians 11 that in communion, we not only remember Jesus inwardly, we proclaim his death outwardly to our children, to one another, and to the world. 
That's what Jesus is doing in the upper room on this night. And as the scene opens, the disciples are expecting just another Passover supper. And so, a Passover supper in Israel would begin with the father or the leader of the group. In this case, it's Jesus who is hosting the Passover. And it would begin with Jesus then opening a, or offering a prayer of blessing. And then everyone at the table then would drink from the first cup of wine. And the youngest child in the family, or in this scene, the youngest disciple is probably John, would ask the big question of the night. Why is this night different from all other nights? And Jesus would respond by telling the story of the first Passover. He would talk about the lamb dying and the death angel visiting and the firstborn living. And then Jesus would explain the significance of all the food and the wine that's on that table. It's all intended to take God's people back to remind them of what he did in Egypt. There is the lamb that's been prepared that they will eat there at the table It's a reminder of the sacrifice that was made to save them. There's also going to be some fruit on on the table that's, that's intended to remind them. And it was put together in such a way that it would kind of look like the bricks that they made back in Egypt. There was unleavened bread there on the table because God delivered his people from Egypt with such lightning fast speed that they did not have time to finish baking their bread. There's a bowl of salt water there symbolizing the tears shed during those 430 years of slavery when they were crying out to God, free us, free us. And there's a bowl of bitter herbs there as well because God had rescued them from their years of bitter living. And then there's wine. Not just one cup or even two or three cups of wine. There are four cups of wine there at the table that correspond with the four promises God had made to his people back in Exodus chapter 6, verses 6 and 7, where he makes these four promises to them. I will bring you out of Egypt. I will deliver you from your enemies. I will redeem you with my outstretched arm. And I will take you to be my people and will be your God. And after Jesus recites these four promises from Exodus chapter 6, they would all drink from the second cup of wine there at the table. And that's when it's finally time to eat. And as the disciples begin eating, we know that they begin talking. It's like us at a family get-together at a gathering. When we start eating, we start what? We start talking. They're no different Now, Mark doesn't tell us what the topic of conversation is around the table, but but Luke does. And Luke tells us that it isn't just a discussion. It's soon an all-out debate. And the question up for debate is, which one of us around this table is the greatest? Which one of us is number one, top dog, the big kahuna? And as the debate heats up, Jesus gets up and he walks over to the door of that room and he picks up the water basin and the servant's towel and silently he makes his way back to the table, kneeling in front of each of the disciples, washing their feet.
is the greatest among them. And he is demonstrating his greatness by washing their feet. It was the lowliest task assigned to and reserved for the lowliest of servants in that society. There was nothing below this. And there's no one below Jesus. Which is why he washes their feet. Even Judas Iscariot. And Jesus calls these men and us to take up the water basin and the servant's towel and to wash one another's feet by being a servant to all. So let's just apply this to where we live. This is part of this upper room scene. This is a part of the scene around the table at which Jesus will institute the last supper and the Lord's Supper. Do we serve like Jesus? Do we love like Jesus? Do we wash one another's feet? And after Jesus is done washing their feet, he will say to his disciples in John 13, verses 34 and 35, as I have done to you, so do to one another. I give you a new commandment. To love one another as I have loved you. By this, all people will know that you're my disciples. By the love you have one for another. You know what serving is? You know what washing feet is? It is love in action. So as we come to this table this morning, we are reminded that we are called by Jesus, the servant of servants, to follow him in being a servant and in loving one another and serving one another and laying down our lives for one another. And the disciples get the point Jesus is making, which is why it is dead silent as Jesus retakes his place at the table. And what he says when he gets there rocks their world. One of you, right here, right now, is going to betray me. One of you who is dipping bread into the dish with me is a traitor. And one by one, the disciples come to Jesus and they ask the same question. Even Judas Iscariot asks, is it I, Jesus? Am I the one? And to Judas, Jesus whispers, you have said so. At that moment, Satan enters into Judas and Jesus says to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. And Judas steps over the love of Jesus and leaves the room walking out on Jesus. Please don't do that. Please, please do not step over the love of Jesus. Take shelter in the love of Jesus. And after Judas walks out of this room, that's when Jesus teaches everything we read in John chapters 14 through 16. And that's when Jesus prays for his disciples everything we read in John chapter 17. And when Jesus concludes his prayer, while they are still eating, Jesus takes the Passover bread, he thanks God for it, and then he breaks that bread and he gives it to them saying, take and eat. This is my body. And they eat together. And then Jesus takes the third cup of wine there on the table. The cup that corresponds to that third promise back in Exodus chapter 6. Where God says, get this, get this, this is so good. 
The third promise is where God says, I will redeem you with my outstretched arm. And as Jesus is lifting that third cup of wine, he is the embodiment. He is the fulfillment of the promise that God has made way back in Exodus chapter 6 because it's through his blood that God will redeem his people with an outstretched arm. It's the third cup that we drink of this morning. It's through his death that God saves us. And that's why Jesus says to his guys, this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many and they drink it together. Okay, so I know that's a lot of information very, very quickly. You probably feel like you're drinking from a fire hose, but it is necessary information if we're going to apply this to where we live and how we worship and what we do here as a church. There are three things about this scene that leap off the page at me. First, I want you to notice the simplicity of everything that happens here. Everything on this night is so simple. And and so that when our lives in following Jesus mirror this scene led by Jesus, when we are always and only, regardless of where we are or what we're doing or whom we're with, when we're always and only about Jesus, when He is the center, it simplifies everything. It simplifies my career. It simplifies my finances. It simplifies my family. It simplifies what we do here at church. It simplifies life. And the simplicity in this scene is striking. Just the venue. This scene does not take place, even though Jesus is the King of kings and Lord of lords, this does not take place in a palace. It doesn't even take place in the temple. It takes place in an unnamed, borrowed upper room somewhere in Jerusalem without any pomp and any circumstance. In fact, we, we understand that what's going on inside this room is earth-shattering, yet nobody outside this room even knows what's happening. It's so intimate, so personal, so simple, showing us that the gospel of Jesus is so simple that it can be symbolized by bread and wine. And yet so many people today, they want to complicate the gospel. They want to make salvation something that we attain by, by jumping through a bunch of, of religious hoops. You know, so often when I've been sharing Jesus with people and I get to the end of the story, I say, you know, it's all because of what Jesus has done. It's all because of who Jesus is, that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Him alone. And when I say that, the person gets this baffled look on their face and they say something like, you mean mean there's no list of do's and don'ts for me to keep? There's no religious rituals for me to perform? Ken, Ken, you're, you're saying that it's faith in Jesus plus nothing and that equals everything? And they're blown away. By the simplicity of all. Yes, yes, it is that simple. But it is not that easy because as sinners, we want it to be about what we do. We want to be self-made men and self-made women. We want to be enough and do enough and give enough to earn eternal life. But listen, listen carefully. That's not just complicated. That's impossible. Titus 3 verse 5. 
tells us that. He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. You know what that means? It means that this, it means that the gospel is all about what Jesus does, not what we do. He does all the work. It's his perfect life. It's his sacrificial death that wins eternal life for all who will come to him in faith. It's that simple because it's all grace. Look at Ephesians 2 verses 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. I mean, just just think about it. I mean... You don't really have to teach your kids what to do on their birthday when you give them a gift. They know what to do. It's simple. They open that gift, right? You don't have to teach them what to do. They, just, they open it. That's salvation. That's the gospel. It is the gift of God. It is not a result of works, lest any of us should boast. So the question is, will you see Jesus for who he is in this room on this night? He's the Savior. We cannot and do not save ourselves. He's the Redeemer. We cannot and do not redeem ourselves. We cannot be enough or do enough. So will you come to Jesus? Because that's his invitation to you in Matthew 11, verse 28, where he says to a whole bunch of religious people who are wearing themselves out, trying to earn their way into God's good graces, here's what he says. Come to me. All you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I'll be all that you need. I'll be everything you need. Just trust in me. Rest in me. Come to me, and my work will save you. Will you? Because if you will, then not only can you, can you celebrate the simplicity of this scene, but you can celebrate the symbolism of this scene. Everything that happens on this night, because everything that had pointed back to Egypt now points to Jesus so that we will remember Jesus. That's why Jesus says, take, take and eat this bread, because this is my body. The bread that had symbolized God rescuing his people from Egypt now symbolizes the body of Jesus that's been torn for us. Now, now listen carefully. When Jesus says, this is my body, he's not saying that the bread literally becomes the actual body of Jesus. It's a metaphor here. It's a figure of speech that Jesus is using. We do this all the time. Back when I played high school football, and that was a long time ago, but I played defensive back. And so my job was to keep the receiver from catching a pass from the quarterback. And it is a blow to my ego this morning to admit to you that I wasn't the best defensive back. Now, I expected to hear some ooze. You know, you're identifying with me in this. Oh, Oz, there's an ah. Okay, thank you. But I wasn't the best defensive back. In fact, I got burned so often by the receiver that my teammates gave me the nickname Toast. (laughs) Now you can ooh and ah for me, okay? You can feel sorry for me. 
And so they gave me the nickname Toast. But, you, you know, nobody thought that I really was a burnt piece of bread. It was metaphor. And Jesus frequently uses metaphor when speaking of himself, right? Like in John 10, verse 9, where he says, I am the what? I am the door. By me, if anyone enter in, he shall go in and out and find green pastures. I am the door. Now, Jesus is not saying that he's a literal door. He doesn't have hinges and a knob. It's a word picture to show us that it's only by entering through Jesus that we ever will enter into God's heaven. And in the same way, then, the bread at the Last Supper isn't literally Jesus' body. It's a symbol just like the wine. So when Jesus takes that third cup of wine from the table and gives thanks for it, the wine does not become his blood. Now, I get that Dracula has become a form of entertainment in our culture, especially with all the Hotel Transylvania movies, but this is not a Dracula kind of scene. The disciples aren't drinking the blood of Jesus. They are drinking wine that symbolizes the blood of Jesus. And so during communion, when we drink from the cup, we are confessing what Jesus says here, that his blood brings us into a new covenant relationship with God. And if you remember back to the Old Testament, all of God's covenants with his people back there were sealed with blood. There was no pinky swearing. There was no cross my heart, hope to die, stick a needle in my eye. Now, these were life and death covenants, so they were sealed with blood. And now, Jesus says, with the shedding of my blood comes a new covenant, a brand new covenant. You can read about it in Jeremiah and Ezekiel in the the Old Testament. And that's why we are in a new covenant relationship with Jesus. That's why none of us this morning brought a lamb with us to sacrifice on the altar, like they did under the Old Covenant. And we didn't bring a lamb this morning because the lamb has been sacrificed for us. That's why on the cross, Jesus cries out, it is finished. The covenant price for my people has been paid in full. Listen, friends, Jesus is the one and final lamb of God. There is nothing left for any other lamb or any other person to ever pay. He paid the price in full. And that's what we celebrate around this table this morning. There is nothing left for us to pay. We enter into a new covenant relationship with God, totally on the grace of Jesus, sealed by the blood of Jesus. We're totally dependent upon Jesus. And that's what's being symbolized as we come to this table and we eat and we drink. It's why most of us will leave this room in just a few moments and we'll head somewhere to have lunch. Now, I know that some of us live to eat, right? But all of us have to eat to live. Isn't it something that it's through eating and drinking that Jesus is teaching us how desperately we need him, just like we do food and drink? And so it's here at this table that we remember Jesus by feeding ourselves on all that God is for us in Jesus. And as we raise that cup and that bread to our lips, 
We are saying what Psalm 73 verse 26 says, that my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart. He is my portion. He's my food and drink forever. And that's why we not only see in this text the simplicity and the symbolism, but we see the significance of Jesus' final words to his disciples in verse 25 where he says, Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Jesus is saying, guys, this is it. This is the end of my time with you. It's our last supper together. See, when all of this goes down, Jesus is the only one who knows that the cross is just hours away. And we cannot pretend that him knowing that was easy for him because he loves these men. John chapter 13, verse 1, he loves them to the end, all the way. And that's why coming to this table is all about remembering Jesus. He has loved us with that same to the max, to the end, unstoppable, unbreakable, never quitting, never giving up kind of love. And so when we partake of communion, we are remembering Jesus' love in two ways. First, we are looking back to the love He has shown us in dying for us. He has rescued us. He has redeemed us. He, is, he will say in this upper room on this night, or I guess it wasn't, it was earlier, He will say, greater love, no, 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 I'm, I'm debating with myself here at the pulpit, um, but it will be in this room on this night that He will say, greater love has no one than this. It's John 15. That a man lay down his life for his friends. And Jesus will do that in just a few hours. So now when we come to this table, we look back to the love he has shown us in dying for us. And so as Romans chapter 8, verses 38 and 39 say, there is nothing that can separate us from the love of Jesus. Nothing at all, ever. And so in communion, we are secondly remembering Jesus by looking forward to the love he will show us and what he will do for us. Not just looking back at what he has done, but looking forward to what he will do. Because when Matthew records Jesus' words, Matthew says that what Jesus says here at the table is this. I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. With you. I love that. I love the hope that Jesus gives his guys here. When they see him crucified... All hope is going to seem lost. But here Jesus prepares them for that moment. And he says, my death isn't the end of the story. I will live again. And because I do, so will you. So we will, guys, we will eat and drink together again. That moment is coming. And that means we come to this table this morning in hope-filled anticipation of being with Jesus in his Father's kingdom. It isn't just that we have hope. It's that Jesus is our hope. And that's why the fourth cup of wine remains on the table in that upper room. The chalice untouched. The wine undrunk. Because that's the cup that Jesus will drink with us in his Father's kingdom. 
It's the cup that corresponds to the final promise back in Exodus chapter 6, verse 7, where God says, I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God forever. And you know what's really cool? I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God forever. God says that way back in Exodus 6. And when you read what John writes in Revelation 21 and 22, there's a repeated theme in the final two chapters of the Bible, and it goes like this. I will be with you as your God, and you will be with me as my people. That fourth cup of wine that we will drink with Jesus in the Father's kingdom. (laughs) So, That's why we remember Jesus. That's how we remember Jesus. And let me give you four practical ways that we can do this every time we come to the Lord's table. Number one, come to this table regularly. Come here regularly. As Christians, communion is not optional. It's essential. That's why, as we read earlier from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me. It's a command. And it's a command because we need this time. It is good for us. It reminds us that we are who we are only because of whose we are. It reminds us of what Jesus has done for us in the past to secure for us a future. And so like these disciples, we come to the table in obedience to Jesus. We intentionally focus our minds and our souls. We feed our souls on Jesus So as we come to the table, secondly, we eat and drink thoughtfully. Our time around the table isn't just some first Sunday of the month add-on to our morning service. The bread and the juice aren't late morning snacks. This is a meaningful, a deeply meaningful time. So we read in 1 Corinthians 11 that before we eat and drink together, we examine ourselves. We do a deep dive into our hearts to search out our hearts for any unconfessed sin, including when I'm not living at peace or in unity with my brothers and sisters in Jesus. Because the same blood that reconciles me to God reconciles me to my brothers and sisters in Jesus. And so we live in unity and at peace. We come to this table together in obedience to Jesus, which means thirdly, we take communion seriously. Communion is the most sacred time in the life of the church. It is so special That in that 1 Corinthians 11 communion text, Paul says that if we fail to take it seriously, it can have devastating consequences up to and including death. Because when we don't take it seriously, we are eating and drinking judgment on ourselves. And so don't treat this table tritely. Take this time seriously. It's a time of real communion and fellowship with our Lord and with one another when we come to celebrate, fourthly, Jesus corporately together. Communion is not something we do alone at home. It's something we do together as His church. As we come to this table in the name of Jesus, we are reminded that we aren't just friends in this room. We are family. 
We're children of the same Father. We're bought by the same blood. We share in the same grace. And we're heading to the same heavenly home. And so as God's people, as God's family, we come to the table together. We eat and we drink from the cup together. We remember Jesus together. Because what happened in the upper room on this night has changed everything for every one of us as God's people. And that's why now we come to the table thoughtfully, worshipfully, corporately. We come to intentionally remember Jesus. He is our King. Amen. So I'm going to invite you at this moment to prepare your heart. Let's do what 1 Corinthians chapter 11 calls us to do. Let's spend some time doing a deep dive into our hearts and prepare our hearts to partake of the Lord's table together. Just pray right there where you are. Search out your heart. Deeply sacred time. Father, we thank you. Thank you that you not only through Jesus tell us what we should do. You tell us why and how we should do it. And so this morning we follow your instructions in coming to your son's table to remember Jesus by looking back at what he has done in grace and looking forward to what he will do in grace. So may Jesus receive all the glory in how we eat and drink now, remembering him until he comes. In his name, amen.